Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on the morning of uh, Thursday, September 28th. Joined, as always, by Elaine Lowe, who I'm told is uh, taking up figurine painting to fill out the free time you have now, Elaine, with covering just one strike. Is that <laughs> Was that the, the, the pivot move? Yes, that's that's the plan with only 160,000 people on strike, figurine painting. Yeah, they'll have a lot of free time now, I'm sure. Uh, the SAG and, of course, AMPTP set a date uh, to get to the table on Monday. October 2nd. Uh, October 2nd. We will get to that in a little bit. I want to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, and, of course, Richard Rushfield from Los Angeles as well, who, uh, Elaine, I did not know this, but I was uh, scouring the, the full WGA agreement on Monday morning. And I saw a note written in the column that Richard is one of the six people who gets all the data, the streaming data from the AMPTP. <laughs> Richard, how did you pull that off? It's very impressive. I just had no one else had asked. And I, oh, I, really? Is that how it is? And it was like the first six that that sign up. First come, first serve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I just I just claimed claimed the slots, and now I I get all the data in Hollywood. Congratulations! But look forward to your reports. And uh, we have uh, Peter Kiefer rejoining as well. Uh, who will tell us all about the collective group hug that is the hallways of CAA right now. Uh, good to see you. How you guys doing? Doing well, thanks. So, Elaine, you know, it's funny what a week can do in the business, uh, or at least a, a Jewish holiday that falls on a Monday. Uh, we now have a WGA deal since the last time we got together here. Yes, we have a deal. The WGA is officially no longer on strike as of Wednesday, September 27th. And, uh, you know, it's by all accounts, the writers seem pretty happy with the deal. The Guild called it exceptional, which, you know, set a pretty high expectation. But, you know, I, I have not really heard from any writers who are are unhappy with the contract. Richard, have you seen any Twitter rumblings or what's been uh, what's been the word in your universe here? Not really. It's uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think people are. Uh, very glad for it to uh, be over and uh, uh, relieved that it addressed uh, the big issues that they that they were looking to be uh, addressed. I think people are still breaking down how it addresses them and what it means. But um, I, I don't think anyone is looking at this and saying we got a we got a lousy deal out of this. So my smartest friend on this said B B plus was worth going on a strike for. OK, going with that as uh, yes, sir. So. We haven't really talked too much about this yet, Richard. So, you know, what stood out to you most in this uh, in the deal or in the talk around it? What's uh, you know, give us give us what's on your radar about this at this point. I mean, the the point that the writers made is that on, on these things like AI and uh, and the, the the minimum room size and all that at the at the beginning, um, the studios weren't even willing to address them. And now they they got concessions there and they're they're it's all really complicated and I'm still trying to break down exactly what it means. The data part is the, is the one that really uh, sort of confuses me and I'm looking for it. That the idea that, that, that every uh, showrunner will be told the number of hours that their shows have been watched, uh, I believe, which, which is a, which is a number that is, you know, in isolation is useless unless you have to have all the numbers to make sense of this. Like what it, when they say you had 973,000 hours watched, whether that's good, you don't know whether that's good or bad until you know what everything else is watched. So what that what it also says is that all of those hours for all the showrunners will be given to the WGA. The WGA will be the repository of um of of all the numbers in Hollywood and the, the most valuable collection of information that exists in Hollywood will exist with the WGA, but in confidentiality, they say. So 
does that mean they can tell the individual showrunners uh, you had 973,000 hours and that's pretty good or or put it in any sort of context? What Where is that confidentiality? So that's that's the confusion for me. Yeah, the general answer is no. Um, I mean, Elaine, I, you know, I I read the you know I don't know if you read the language in the actual you know the contract itself. Um, the con, <laughs> we're sharing the data with you, uh, up to six members of the WGA. Uh, that's the limitation that they put on it in in writing and in the, in the contract. Uh, but they said no data on individual shows, networks, streamers can be shared with members. Essentially, it was more you can share quote unquote, something in aggregate, which uh, Elaine and I interviewed Adam Conover, who was on the WGA uh, negotiating committee. And he was, you know, saying some, the, the, what aggregate report means, Richard uh, was not defined Elaine. That was kind of the takeaway there. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're going to only be able to get a fuller understanding once we actually see it in practice, right? Once we actually see the implementation of the new contract, and then we'll be able to sort of anecdotally hear from showrunners and the like of like what kind of data they're actually getting. Um, I and and you know to go back to our conversation with Adam Conover yesterday, who's uh, obviously a WGA a negotiating committee member and um, a showrunner himself, is that the idea is that you know even though they're this didn't like blast the door open on data transparency, right? But the idea, I think, is to build on it in successive, in subsequent contracts. Yeah, that was definitely the the, the tone there, Richard. It wasn't, oh, hey, we got all the numbers. I mean, look, they are getting, you're right, they are, the WGA as an entity is getting the reports every quarter. Um, they're going to come essentially the quarter after. So for the first quarter, if your show aired in January to March, the report comes in June, you know, so it's, it's not going to be right away kind of thing either. But in terms of what's going to be shared, even Adam didn't have the exact details as to what that information is going to be. But there is a clause in there that said you can't send, you know, specific information on specific shows. You can't share that information. So, so on on both this and AI, it sort of seems like, yeah, they 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 got a foot in the door to be able to have conversations with people about this and begin to the discussion. If if they just said no, we're not doing anything about that, then there would have been no basis to even talk about it going going forward. So um, I, I think a lot of question marks, but uh, better to have the foot in the door than than not. Yeah, and it's in writing, and it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's codified now, Richard. Yeah, that's a good point. On on, on the minimum room size, uh, they're not going to force Mike White to hire uh, more writers to write a show, but that's unclear to me what uh, uh, how many shows will actually be impacted by that because they're very – shows already that were lower than that but uh anyway it's it seems like a lot of improvements and a lot of like getting a foot in the door in these new areas where it would be really hard to uh work things out because it's uh it's all new and no one knows what ai is going to look like in two years uh, adam did reiterate that elaine yesterday the, exactly the foot in the door the i think he would he but the, the the crowbar or whatever his analogy was yesterday <laughs> right. to jammed open the lock or whatever it was maybe more you know from a I think that's the right approach because our, our studio is going to use AI. How are they going to use AI? What are AI? It's, you know, it's very hard to create rules right now for when, when you don't know what the entire landscape will look like. So, yeah. So foot in the doors is, is, is probably what you want right now. But uh, even as Adam said, you know, at the start of the, you know, back in May, everybody was telling them there's no way you're getting minimum, you know, minimum writers in a room. Like that was, you know, it was a, it was a hard no. And, you know, Elaine, that was a, that's to me the biggest structural change you know that that's a codified thing in a contract now this isn't some 
oh, this showrunner gets it, this showrunner doesn't get it. Like, you know, that seems to me the the big thing here, Elaine. Is that what about what, what you know, what's standing out number one in your mind? Yeah, I mean, you rewind back to the beginning of the strike. What's the main undercurrent of what everybody was asking for? It was the sustainability of the profession, right? right. Like that was the underlying issue of, you know, we don't want to become gig writers. TV writing shouldn't be like a freelance economy. Um, and so they've essentially managed to codify, like, I think they were initially looking for six writers. They wound up getting three uh, for epi- for six episodes or less. Um, I think it was five writers for seven to 12 episode shows, and then uh, at least six writers for, for seasons of at least 13 episodes. So these are, you know, pretty significant requirements now. How many shows existed of that length that had less than those numbers before that? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how many that impacted. When they talk about this issue, they talk about the same two shows, White, White Lotus and Last of Us, uh, over and over and over. The, the thing is, most showrunners want as many writers as they can get. So I, I just don't know how big a change that, that really is uh, in practice. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just sort of setting the tone philosophically as well. Like something that Adam had told Sean and I yesterday is, you know, as a showrunner, especially as a first time showrunner, you only get a certain amount of power. You're not told the budget. You're said you're given a number of writers that you're able to hire. And it's like basically a take it or leave it premise if you're not like a Ryan Murphy or a Shonda Rhimes who has a great deal of creative control. And so I think it's to sort of alleviate some of that pressure, too, because I I know one counter argument was like, yeah, but as a showrunner, you get to set how many writers you get. And the thing I've heard from, you know, number of showrunners is like, no, like you you wind up having to bend to the pressure that comes from higher up, which, you know, I think is kind of true in any industry when you're essentially like sort of like mid mid level with some directional control, but not ultimate ultimate say. To, to me, it looks mostly, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but it looks mostly like codifying a s- situation that was already the, you know, in, in place for 95% of the the shows and protecting against a scenario that some some see happening in the future. Be interested to see. I mean, I don't think the guilds released any stats on this, but yeah, I'd be curious to know what like the median room size is. And it's also the duration of the show. Like the big thing also is that the farm system wasn't being grown because you would, even if you were hired on a show, you didn't stay through production. And now that is also codified in this contract, which I think, you know, arguably may even be a bigger aspect of this is that it wasn't that maybe, okay, we did have writer's room. Sure. But the showrunner was the only person on the set, you know, and that was the big kind of thing. I think at least that I heard or written the reporting when the, when the strike first started. So that, and that has been addressed in this contract as well, which I think is a, a big, a big step um, to have in a contract. Again, as a minimum, it can be enhanced. It can be, you know, grown from that. But um, so we'll see what they're coming back to. Elaine is also, you know, not everybody's going back to work, but it is certainly a, a big step in, in for the, the industry at this point. So one of the other things that we have to consider too is that at least a lot of the industry insiders that I've spoken to have talked about a contraction in the business, right? Like a contraction that had already started post-pandemic after there was this glut, this bottleneck of, you know, over-commissioned shows that had already begun and had really become accelerated by the strike. So we're looking at an industry that may look to further contract. And I just wonder what that intersection of like the implementation of the new contract is going to look like with with a business that's 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 going to be shrinking. 
it'll look like a lot less people because you're also be spending more per show in a sense you know the, they did also get pay increases as well which which matched the dga which not a big surprise there but um i'll, I'll tell you a little aside here that i uh a lot of producers uh film producers in particular were expecting that the day the strike ended that they would get a flood of scripts that um that people had written uh secretly over over the strike and I spoke to two producers uh, yesterday, which is a representative sample, I think, uh, <laughs> and they they both reported no flood of scripts. Okay, day one. Day one. The pens down was taken seriously. Uh, All right, we'll see. We'll see what uh, what breaks in the trades next week. Uh, Elaine, SAG is up on Monday, as we said. Uh, does anything apply here from the WGA to bring over to maybe hopefully instill the spirit of this may come together faster? Or- Set the stage for us here as, as SAG begins uh, their first sit down with the AMPTP since the strike, their strike started. Yeah, so it's been a number of months since SAG has sat down with the AMPTP and had any sort of meaningful interaction. The perception that I had had, which I think Adam dispelled a little bit yesterday, the perception that I had had was that, well, doesn't the WGA contract now set something of a template, something of a precedent for SAG. And I think in, in some ways, maybe it, it does, right? In the fact that the studios actually did negotiate something, anything around AI, things that the Writers Guild had said back in May that the studios didn't want to engage on at all. So in that sense, I think it sets a little something of a template of like SAG knows that the studios will engage to some degree on AI. But what those exact things are, like Adam was telling us yesterday, are going to be vastly different because obviously the way AI is implemented in a writer's room is very different from the way AI is implemented in, uh, you know, on screen for for a performer. Um, so like that, that will have to be a whole can of worms that's that's you know opened and, and litigated over. But um, but but I do think it does set something of a precedent to say like, oh look, they are willing to engage on X, Y, and Z topics. And Richard, I want to just throw this idea. You know, obviously there's a sense of you know. Uh, success, elation for the writers, but, you know, SAG is still on strike here. Is there a sense of uh, renewed momentum uh, that kind of has to be renewed here, do you feel? Or, you know, as SAG begins, they're, they're, they're on day one here, essentially, on, on Monday. I, I tell you, in the, the, the general sort of coverage of this, from the beginning, SAG has kind of been an afterthought in the coverage, which is not to say it's an afterthought in uh, real life, but, you know, it, it's almost been portrayed as though, like, this were like the little buddy strike and like the, and, and they were just going out to back up the writers. And and now it's sort of assumed that like, okay, now the, now the writers, the serious people have done this. So they'll, so they'll come along and follow uh, in line right away. But uh, who knows is the real thing. We haven't, we haven't heard much from, from SAG about what, what their perspective is about this and what, what are the issues that are really burning them besides uh, the AI, AI thing. So We'll see. And, uh, you know, SAG is always very hard to read because you have it's 150,000 members of whom, you know, maybe 10,000 make a full time living at this. So it's very hard to predict, but we shall see. And the pay increase too, Elaine, you know, they're asking for 11% in year one and DGA and WGA both went five, four, 3.5. So, you know, uh, we'll see kind of how that you know, possibly shakes out as well. Um, Peter, I want to, you know, turn to you here, uh, number, you know, and talk about your, your great piece this week first, but also you, you've been spending a lot of time talking to agents and people in the agency world. Uh, what's buzzing in your, your world about the deal, the deal here and, and SAG on strike and so forth. Uh, you know, what impressed upon you? 
as with regards to the agents and the representation business, there was, you know, I, I think they're relieved that especially relieved it's over because it did feel like some of the coverage, including some of ours, uh, was trending in a direction which was scrutinizing uh, whatever roles they might be playing and trying to get in the ear of some of their very powerful clients. So uh, effectively, that narrative is hopefully behind us from uh, from their vantage point. That's a, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I was I was quite surprised actually, Richard, that your your producer source was saying that there was no flood of, of scripts coming in. I'm surprised. That's I think the agencies that the agents that I have talked to are and, and the managers as well were and are and still anticipating that to occur. But we'll see. Like uh, I don't I have no reason to distrust uh, your source, but that's a, that was a, that's surprising to hear because well, maybe people are doing a last minute spell check on it or something. <laughs> One last polish, yeah. Um, so Peter, uh, you have a big piece this week on CAA, uh, the Pinot deal is now, uh, we all out there, but, uh, the repercussions are starting to come in here. So why don't you, you set up what you, uh, what you put at the ankler this week? I, you know, I did my best in that story, not to make a reference to game of Thrones. Cause it's just been so overused <laughs> at this point. Uh, but that was the comp that came up in many of my conversations with people uh, who are uh, aware of what's going on inside CAA, which is the most powerful agency in town. They had a, a new ownership structure was just announced, evaluating the company at about seven billion dollars, which is a, a you know huge huge sum. The story that I wrote was who wins inside CAA because of this deal. Oh, traditionally, there's been uh, when when these sort of events occur. It's not a full liquidity event where everyone who holds CAA stock is just going to be paid out. They didn't go public. It's not. They did not go public. This is not an IPO. This is still a private company. This is not Endeavor. This is exactly. It's a very different thing from what happened um, with WME and Endeavor. Um, However, um, there is and there has been a a pot of money you might call in which the principles of CAA, the three the three principles, have uh, been able to a uh, pay themselves some money, uh, usually quite a bit. Uh, and then ultimately give some money out to some of their top performing agents. Uh, there is a lot of outstanding stock in CAA. And this story started when I got some um, some calls from people who have, you know, according to them, millions of dollars invested CAA stock. And the word coming out of CAA, now this is an official, but this, I've heard this from multiple sources now, is that CAA is, is going to monetize uh, 10% of everyone's existing vested stock which is doesn't strike me as a huge sum and i think the lot of in, a lot of the incoming calls i got were people upset about that figure and basically the story is when you've seen this private equity pour into the the agencies like caa uh, and, and obviously william morris this notion of stock as part of compensation becomes a bigger part of the discussion but stock is meaningless unless you have a liquidity event so this moment in time is one of the opportunities for people to ultimately get some cash out from the stock that they've just been sitting on for 12 years. And so everyone is sort of jockeying for position, trying to get in front of the principals, trying to plead their case and get more than this 10% because you're talking about very, very large sums of money. So um, the top performing agents is what I'm told are all very concerned about this. You know, agents are not the most patient uh, uh, type of people. They're they're aggressive. They're pushy. They're deal makers. That's what they do. They make deals. Yeah, yeah. They're deal makers. They're deal makers, and and they they fight on behalf of their clients' behalfs, and you know they're going to fight on their own behalf. So, just to make sure I understand it, so they are telling you that the new owners will buy ten percent of your stock, 
and the other 90% you hold on to to wait. It's unclear. That's what's also what's upsetting people is because what I've heard is that there's at least at this point no clear guidance uh, on what is going to happen to that remaining 90%, which has people quite pissed off because they'd like to know. At the very least, they'd like to know what's going to happen to it or you know um, what opportunities are there. So so um, some of these top agents are, are starting to sit down with the principals and plead their case. So that was sort of the news. It's, it's, it's interesting, I think, if you just pull back first sort of investments of private equity will go back to 2010. We are now in 2023 and people are getting losing their patience. You know, they've been told um, not just at CAA, but, you know, and elsewhere that there will be a moment you will be this this there will be a liquidity event. You just got to hold on. You just got to hold on. I promise it's coming. It's right around the corner. And I think that we're at we're now at this point where people are starting to feel like at least some of them are starting to feel like they've been duped a little bit if if they're not ultimately going to be able to take out some of the cash that they feel like they've been accrued. And that is some of the exasperation and, and some of the disgruntlement. Uh, that I've been hearing about. I mean, for these agents, there's no moving up because the the heads of the agencies uh, aren't going anywhere, presumably, you know, for another 40 years, having 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 ruled these agencies for 30 years now. Yeah, around there. There's no moving up on the uh, on the on the corporate ladder. And now you're told that the liquidity event is only worth 10 percent of what you thought it would be. Uh, that sounds like you're you're sitting on a powder keg there. Yeah, in theory. Um, but it's also CA is a very, very powerful place. And so I think a, a lot of these individuals and some of the some of the conversations that I've had uh, for people who have left are saying, well, you know, you're in a much better situation. If it, let's say you have 20 million dollars in CAA stock, uh, the principals are going to honor you if you stay within the confines of CAA uh, uh, much more quickly than they will for somebody who may have defected and gone to a rival or tried to start their own outfit. So there is an incentive for people to stay uh, within the walls of CAA and hope that some other event will be coming down the pipeline. But part of what I sort of uh, chose to, to analyze is that the leaders over there, the top agents, are, are all. what makes this particularly hard to swallow is that there have been a number of, of previously considered top agents who have gotten fed up and left. And some of them have gotten very wealthy uh, in the process by forging their own sort of entrepreneurial path. I list some of the names of the people that have gone uh, on and, and and done that. And I think internally, uh, there's a bit of a reckoning, a personal reckoning going on with some of these top agents who are going, yikes, I could have gone out, I could have struck out on my own, whatever, six, seven, 10 years ago. And, and I had a chance to build something that I owned myself. And I think for some of these people, there's the stage that they are in their careers that's not necessarily an option for them anymore. So there's, it's like, it's just the classic sort of golden handcuff situation. Do the principals recall that when they took over the helm of the agency, it was because they, it happened after they, they, they ran Mike Ovitz out of town on a rail and sort of forced him at, at uh, shotgun to, to go to Disney because they were saying, Hey, we're, we're, we're 32, 33 years old now. We can't wait forever to rise up in this company. We're it's our turn. You got to get out of the way. Precisely. But I think that as, as we've written about and, and at the Ankler is that there's a larger discussion to be had about succession across the enti entire entertainment industry. CAA is, is part of that discussion. Complicating matters is these, the entry of private equity. It's a much more complicated world. These agencies are no longer just in talent representation. They have sort of broadly diversified portfolios of 
of companies and startups and 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 revenue streams and whatnot. So and and they're multinational conglomerates and CAA is, is a much much larger company uh, than it was uh, when Ovitz was running it. But I, I agree with you, Richard, and I think that that is a point that is being brought to the attention of these co-principals. Whether or not they're going to hear it, I, I, I'm not. I don't know. And remember, you know, Pino only bought you know essentially a little over half of it, so it wasn't even a total buy-in event, so to speak. You know, it's, it wasn't even a, you know, it's definitely not going public, which would be a hundred percent of the company's not public. It wasn't, you know, so even the money coming in, it wasn't this like wholesale buyout event, Peter, that, you know, was hoped for, for, you know, as you point out for 13 years, it's a long time to be so, well, when we get that investment, I'm going to get my, my payday. And now this happens and you're telling me I'm getting 10%. And even if, you know, you know, turns it over in what you know four years five years it's like i gotta wait how much longer for another quote-unquote event to happen to get maybe paid out more i don't know you know it's, it's a it's, it's a precarious position there to we need to start thinking about the bigger picture and the timelines involved as you say i think it's a big thing for yeah yeah and and, and i spoke to people who were coming to the defense of ca and their point was exactly that sean which was that this was not a wholesale purchase by an outside entity what, what effectively happened was Pinal came in and just bought tpg stake but they bought TPG's stake at, a, at basically a 10x increase of evaluation of the company. Right, right. So TPG is walking away with, they're feeling pretty good about their their initial investment that dates back to- Their their valuation was uh, $1 billion, I think, when they bought in, $7 billion at the end. Yeah, right. I think, yeah, I think it was actually around 700. It was oh, okay. Like, 700 million. So literally, I think it's quite, it's almost close to 10x. Um, I think there's some debt involved in the whole thing. Sure, so sure, sure. That. But- if you are one of the top agents and you have regularly brought in, you know, large sums of revenue for that company and you're looking over there and TPG is walking away with 10x uh, on their investment. Right. And you're being told that you can, you know, you can you can monetize just this small 10 percent. And you were the actually the ones that were helping create the value uh, that by which TPG was able to make. You're going to it's going to be hard to stomach. And I think that there's going to be some very sort of tense conversations that are going to go on over the next few weeks. Great piece, uh, Peter. And again, go check that out over at theankler.com for all the details, uh, even more so. Um, two things that will wrap out this week. Peter, are you a big CNN watcher? I tend to. Yeah, I'm drawn. I'm drawn to it here and there. Okay. Richard, I'm going to say no. Elaine, how about you? Uh, I'm not much for cable news, to be honest. <laughs> and Richard, I presume, Richard, I should add, are you a... Uh, I, I haven't looked at TV news and <laughs> I, I, I watch it every four years on election night. And... Yeah, I, I should specify I turn my TV on like once a week. So <laughs> front lines of the entertainment business right here, people. There we go. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well done, team. All right. Well, I will, uh, wanted to, you know, notes of CNN launched on Max this week, essentially um, free. Uh, and it's very interesting how they're presenting it in that it's on the homepage in the morning. It says CNN newsroom. Um, there's no logos on Max. There's no CNN logo present. The tab at the top just says news with a parentheses of beta on it. It does not have a CNN section like HBO has a section. But essentially, you know, Aaron Burnett's on there. Anderson Cooper's on there. Like they've kind of shifted CNN to a streaming uh, channel outside of the bundle and hoping that nobody notices. I, it's a very curious presentation as to how this is, uh, and there was no big, you know, they announced the date and so on and so forth. It wasn't hidden per se, but this isn't a blaring the horn. CNN is now on max uh, situation where you're going to see with sports, the, the sports cheers launching uh, next weekend. You're going to see a lot about that. This was not that situation. And it's very curious to me to observe how they're pre presenting this, Richard. 
I mean, the great trend of the last couple of years is uh, rebuilding TV circa 2004 right. uh, on a much less lucrative uh, platform. So, <laughs> Right. This is free. This is all part of your max subscription, whether you're uh, an ad tier or not. So, and, and they have ads in the feed and so on and so forth. But if you're a CNN, avid CNN watcher, Peter, you know, if you're still, you're still paying for the bundle to watch CNN, I have uh, good news for you. Well, you know, it's funny. I how does that I, I I get CNN through Hulu, like the 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 Hulu Plus Live TV. Live TV. And and I feel like I, I'm fully in tech technically speaking, I'm fully streaming, but I, I'm assuming that CNN moving to Max is not going to impact their presence on the Hulu Plus. Oh no, it's there's no there's no change to the system. It's just that it's essentially, you know, you're paying for a bundle. I mean, you just right. a virtual one, it's not a cable one, but you know, you're paying your by the way, your prices are going up in a couple of weeks. I saw that. I saw that. So you're now paying ostensibly up to ninety dollars a month. I'm not sure how bougie your tier is, but uh, you know, and CNN is is in you're paying for it there. And if you're paying for Max, you're also quote unquote paying for it there and you're getting it twice in, in, in a, my 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 Hulu Plus subscription, I can confirm is now more than my uh than my cable subscription used to oh, be. Oh yes, but by far. I mean ninety dollars so, a month yeah. is yeah. So while you guys were talking, I logged into Max.com and it's like, oh I get news now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the world discovers it, Elaine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh in the wings. Anyway, just a curious thing from this week. Um Elaine, throughout this whole conversation, could you sense Richard's excitement? We have four new wide release movies today. Uh, you know, this is a big, big day in the movie movie business here. So I, I could just feel the the vibes vibrating off of you. Richard, tell us what we're in for this weekend. Uh I ha- I've seen uh Dick's the musical, of course, and uh and and Paw Patrol. Oh, Dick's, I think, is next week, did it? Which 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 I don't think will ever be a double feature. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed them both very much. I took the kids to see Paw Patrol, and uh, without giving too much away, uh, no spoilers, Richard. If you're Sky fans, she's got a big arc in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you're emotionally invested in it, Richard. That that Which guy dog is, is Sky? the uh, the the flying one. Okay, that makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was always more of a uh, more of a rubble. Uh, a rubble <laughs> follower, but uh, she she won you over. And R- Rubble has his moments here, and uh, he has he, he has he gets some screen time. But uh, it's really Sky's story that's gonna that's gonna move you. No fun fun movie for all. It is the highest tracking film uh, going into the weekend. Here we also have Dumb Money from Sony and uh, the creator from Disney Fox, uh, and then of course Saw X from uh, Lionsgate, as we said. Um, Peter, anything for you for the weekend? My wife's heading out of town, so I have one job this weekend is not to not let my kids get injured. So, no, I, there will be there will be no consumption of anything other than, uh, you know, uh, bottles and, you know, chicken nuggets. So, unfortunately, I'm I'm quite boring on that front for you guys. Are you guys more like Bluey people when it comes to dog cartoons? Yeah, we're still on Bluey. Um, and there's Bunked. My daughter is obsessed with Bunked. Have you seen this one about the camp? The camp? It's oh, it's everywhere now. It's doing quite well. So anyways, it's 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 on loop in my household. What service is that on? That's a Netflix. All right. I got nothing on this one. So uh, I'll leave that. You're, you're a PJ Masks man. Is that, is that <laughs> it? No. <laughs> Finally, a reference. This is how you feel when I talk about sports, I guess. This is exactly <laughs> right. So this is all almost all payback now. All right. That wraps up this week. Uh, you can, of course, subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com to check out Peter's great piece, uh, all of Richard, of course, and myself, uh, the Wake Up newsletter, and much more. 
Follow the Ankler on the socials at the Ankler and uh, Elaine. Of course, Strike Guys uh, still going very strong, and you'll be back out. I assume uh, the WGA pickets uh, next week. Uh, the SAG pickets, John. Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh my, I have to change my letters <laughs> in my head. You got me. But you'll be out, and uh, people can contact you, of course. Yes, please do. Elaine at theankler.com. And subscribe to Strikegeist at strikegeist.com. Again, totally free. Uh, Elaine, Richard, and Peter, always a pleasure as always. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.